This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Politics, policy, pop culture, all of it wrapped up with one guest, unedited. That's the big commitment I make to you, everyone in this audience. What I say maybe get edited for time, but never our guests. We never have a post-show conversation about someone being taken out of context. What they say is what you hear. That's my commitment to you. Our guest this week, you probably have heard of him, Joe Lieberman. Yes, he was the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party, along with presidential nominee Al Gore in 2000. They were actually in a presidential race that was very close and legally contested, as opposed to the 2020 race, which by all statistical measurements, wasn't that close and should not have been contested. We'll get into that, I assure you. Uh, Senator Liebman, it's great to see you. How are you? How are you doing? Uh, good to be with you, Major. Uh, thanks. I'm doing really well. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I'm hoping and praying for the end of the pandemic as soon as possible. But other than that, uh, life is good. So I will speak for you. I say this almost every show, um, and I think I can speak for you in this. I am enormously privileged to be able to do the work I do as I do it, meaning from home. We've been doing this show from my dining room, Zoom room, since mid-March. As you may or may not know, Senator Lieberman, this show was built around taking this conversation into restaurants all over the country, mostly in D.C., but we've taken it on the road because I always wanted the idea of an atmosphere of a restaurant because I thought it would make the conversation better. It would enhance it, and sure enough, it did. Not possible during the pandemic, but nevertheless, the work I do – I can do from home, and I've been able to do from home, and I understand what an enormous advantage slash privilege that is in this time. And lots of Americans don't have that advantage, don't have that privilege, and I say to this to them every show, if I, if I can remember, thank you. And we're thinking of you, and we're trying to behaviorally do the things to put you at minimum risk. Right. So I'll say that on both of our behalf. No, that's well said. Let me uh, just, uh, since you've got a little time, I uh, first, sure. I totally agree with you. Secondly, uh, I look forward to the end of the pandemic because you can go out to the restaurants like you wanted to. And I want to tell you that when I started my uh, Senate career, I was looking for a way to connect with people. And I started to do uh, t- uh, town hall meetings, if you will. And a lot of the times they were dominated by people who were in interest groups that already were coming to see me in Washington. So I said, this is not this is not what I want. This is not real people. So we got the idea to start visiting diners in Connecticut and uh, because it was a very comfortable atmosphere in which to 
talk to people. I don't mean everybody agreed with me and had nice things to say, but at least I was just randomly meeting regular people in the diner, and they were very uh, uh, good conversations. I used to say that I, I, I don't know why I'm paying my pollster to tell me what the public thinks. I'm getting it for nothing except the cost of a cup of coffee <laughs> from people in the diner. So I look forward to having you go back to the restaurants. No doubt. No doubt. So one of the things we're going to talk about in this episode is Joe Lieberman's work along with Tom Ridge, who's been a guest on this show a couple of years ago Good. on something called the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And uh, Senator Lieberman is going to have an I told you so moment that he, I'm sure he will indulge and embrace in because they've just put out a new report. They have a previous report that indicated a lot of things we should do that if we had done them before this pandemic arrived, we would be much better off. I promise we'll get to that topic okay. in the not too distant future. But the first thing I want to talk about, Senator Lieberman, is what's going on in Washington on several fronts. Let's just talk about impeachment. From your vantage point, knowing the Senate as you do, casting important votes as you did, being an important interlocutor for the entire Democratic Party during the impeachment process of Bill Clinton, should Donald Trump, even though he's been removed, he's left office, be impeached? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, it looks like the votes are not there to convict him. But I think what happened uh, after the election, and particularly after the Electoral College met and voted uh, in the states uh, to, uh, the, uh, to, for Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States, that uh, President Trump's uh, uh, behavior really was a challenge to the constitutional order uh, about how elections are decided. I'm not a great fan of the Electoral College, as you may remember, Al Gore and I would have been uh, elected if it hadn't been for the Electoral College. But that's the law, that's the Constitution. So, uh, and then the, the mob attack on the uh, Capitol on January 6th was just the low point in American history. So. I think the House was right to impeach uh, President Trump, and I do think it's right for the Senate uh, to hold a trial. Incidentally, um, the vote the other day did in the Senate, uh, though there were only five Republicans who, who voted um, uh, sort of against President Trump, if I can put it that way. It does, in my opinion, establish another precedent that says that a federal official, including the president, can be tried on a charge of impeachment uh, even after that person leaves office. That's a significant historic contribution based on how extreme uh, events were that led to this. Uh, we'll see what happens. It doesn't look to me like there are enough votes to convict uh, President Trump. Uh, I hope in the end, if there's not a conviction, that the bipartisan work being done by uh, Senator Susan Collins and Senator Tim Kaine uh, to ask for a censure of the president for his behavior does end up in a bipartisan unifying statement against his behavior uh, after the election. If you were in the Senate, would you vote to convict? Uh, the, the, the hard answer to that, that is the definitive answer, is probably I, I would wait and see uh, what the evidence is at the trial. But right now, I would say I would be disposed to vote to convict, yes. And, and, and the, the main effect there is to have a statement for history, for the future, really, not so much for the past, that the behavior that President Trump, no matter what you think about him or I think about him in terms of this policy or that, I agreed with some, I, I disagreed with others, his behavior with regard to the election was really unacceptable. 
and uh, transfer of power, unacceptable. Uh, so I would be, right now I would say I'd be inclined to vote to convict and therefore prohibit him uh, as a next step from uh, ever holding federal office uh, again. Right, that would be the second vote if there right. was a vote to convict. Right. And you can't get to that second vote unless you get to that vote of conviction. And as you said earlier this week, there was a Senate question put to the floor. Is this impeachment process constitutional? Only five Republicans said, yes, it would be constitutional to conduct this trial after the president leaves office. That was the procedural question. It seemed to me, Senator Lieberman, that was the Republicans' way to try to dodge the underlying question if they can. Let's have a process argument so we don't have to confront the ugly reality of what happened on January 6th and the, and the rhetoric of the president that led to it. Yeah, I agree in their heart of hearts that, uh, that at least half the Republicans in the Senate, maybe a majority, um, uh, find uh, President Trump's behavior uh, unacceptable and, uh, and really un unconstitutional against the spirit of the Constitution. But, you know, they're facing a real political dilemma, and I understand that. As you know, and I think everybody's learned, that impeachments, understandably, tend to be very partisan so that the, uh, the voting of the articles of impeachment against President Trump this time in the House, which had, I think, 10 Republicans uh, voting for uh, the charges, essentially, uh, was the most bipartisan vote on impeachment in our history. It wasn't very bipartisan, but it was the most bipartisan ever. So it, it's, that's, that's the way it is. You, if I heard you correctly, are inclined to support censure, but only after the trial itself hasn't rendered a conviction. You don't want to short circuit that by going straight to censure. No, I think what happened here was serious enough leading to uh, the mob uh, attack on the Capitol and people were killed, died as a result of what happened. And, and the, the, there was really an attempt to stop the election of a person who was elected according to the Constitution and law, to be the next president of the United States. That is so much without precedent in our history that uh, I think that uh, a, a trial has to be held. Uh, and if there's not enough votes for conviction when it's over, then I think there ought to be a bipartisan statement of censure of President Trump for his behavior in regard uh, to the election. Very good. That's the voice of Senator Joe Lieberman, our special guest here at The Takeout. Stay tuned for segment two in just a second. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Senator Joe Lieberman, our special guest, continuing our conversation about impeachment and the insurrection and things related to it. Where were you that day, and what did you think when you saw it unfold? January 6th. January 6th, well, you know, I was where... <clears throat> Excuse me, I've been most of the time since March uh, 12th right here in uh, the apartment in which my wife and I live. So um, we, um, I, I, 
I, w- I was working at my desk. I was involved in Zoom meetings, and uh, I saw a notice come across uh, on my smartphone uh, that something was happening. I knew there was going to be a rally, but I saw that there was a, a march to the Capitol, and that appeared to be a disruption. And then, of course, I turned on the TV, and uh, I was shocked. Really, it was just a, it was a nightmare. Uh, to, to watch that happen. And of course, for me, because I worked in that building for 25 years, 24 years, I revere the building. It's a beautiful building. It's the, it is, you know, and it sounds trite, but it is the citadel of our democracy. I, I was thinking about how often I would see tours of people from around the country going through the capital, and they, they are, they're almost hushed. I mean, they really act in a very uh, respectful way because they sense that they're in the middle of history and, and where our democracy functions or, or doesn't function. So it, it was shocking, really, very shocking. I've said several times on this show, I consider it the most beautiful building in America. It was the great privilege of my early career in Washington to spend more than a decade covering Congress, House and Senate. And I want to <clears throat> relate an experience, uh, and I'm not trying to be... Um, odd when I relate this, but I want to see if you have anything that's similar to it. There would be times when I would be covering late night negotiations, 11, 12, 1 in the morning, and I would walk from the House side to the Senate side. The Capitol is empty, except for a few reporters and a few lawmakers. And I would walk through that rotunda very late at night in that hushed quiet you described, Senator, and it was almost as if I could hear whispers of the past in that rotunda. And it was an overwhelming and moving experience for me. I wonder if you ever had anything like that feeling the presence of the Capitol and its history around you? All the time. I mean, you just gave me an association. I'll I'll give you an odd reaction. When I started law school, I went to Yale. I had a young professor then, uh, Guido Calabresi. Uh, He was tough then. He got a little calmer as time went on. So he said, if you ever get stressed out here at law school, cross the street to the Grove Street Cemetery. And it's a beautiful place. And there's some historic figures there. Roger Sherman, who... Connecticut at the Constitutional Convention, Eli Whitney and the Cotton Gin, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I used to think of that because there were times when we were in long sessions, particularly at night, just as you said. Uh, uh, Nobody really, no tourists in the building or anything. And in between votes, you could go back to your hideaway. I did that some. I was working. Go to the cloakroom, a schmooze with your colleagues. But sometimes I would just walk into that rotunda and just feel history all around, statues of people from all the states, beautiful, look up at that dome from inside, unbelievable. So I, 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 you know, I don't find your story odd at all. And it was very therapeutic. I mean, it is a beautiful building. It's a beautifully designed building. Even the construction of it is kind of remarkably uh, historic. So, um, Thank you for telling that story. So you were the first uh, chairman, I believe, of the Committee on Homeland Security in the Senate. You helped draft the legislation that created the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. You spent a good time focused on the threats to America of extremist-influenced terrorism from outside our shores. Did you ever imagine, as you were doing that work and as you tried to make sure government called it what it was, you would be in a position where you would, I believe, recommend to our country, as the FBI said yesterday, we need a terrorism alert about extremism within our country. It is white supremacist, it is anti-Semitic, and it is real. Yeah, no, it is shocking. I mean, let's go back, because in the 90s, uh, we we began to confront both foreign-based terrorism, Islamic terrorism, and even 
uh, here in the U.S., like in 1993, uh, Al-Qaeda tried a truck bomb in the World Trade Center. It did some damage, but thank God uh, nothing like happened on 9-11. But the, the real change in our attitude in America was, I believe it was 1998, with the Oklahoma City bombing, which was federal building, which was domestic terrorism. I can tell you that at the Capitol and in Washington generally, security went up more than ever before. But um, after 9-11, we were totally focused on uh, foreign-based terrorism. And that was the, the focus not only of creating the Homeland Security Department, but then of reforming uh, our intelligence apparatus to deal, our intelligence community, uh, to deal with these new uh, threats. Um, was domestic terrorism on our minds? It was. But in my opinion, uh, this event on January 6th, uh, really brings it right back to the top. And interestingly, maybe it's a sign that, fortunately, we did a pretty good job in our post-9-11 reforms. The statistics seem to show that there have actually been more acts of terrorism and violence uh, in recent, let's say, years from domestic terrorism than from foreign-based terrorism. Uh, and what's terrorism? Terrorism is the use of violence uh, to achieve a political objective. And clearly, that's what was tried on 9-11, uh, and that's what was attempted uh, on January 6th. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to happen again, so we have to fight it, and we have to apply all the national strength that we have, and we've applied against the Islamic terrorists, against domestic uh, terrorism uh, extremist groups as well. They threaten us from inside. So there was a moment in your career when uh, WikiLeaks was rampant and you uh, made phone calls to various uh, web-based services in the United States to discourage them from being allowed to or posting things emanating from WikiLeaks. I uh, want your thought, and you were so criticized in some circles for that. I know you felt that that was the right thing to do. What are your thoughts now about deplatforming, about the responsibility financial or otherwise, that large tech companies have for, propag if not propagating, providing platforms for the propagation of disinformation that has proved so poisonous to our American political dialogue? This is a really important question. I mean, with WikiLeaks, I was just so angry that they gave a, uh, a platform and a distribution point for um, really classified information that was, what was let out and really harmed America's security. And I thought this should be held to account. Our, our struggles with the internet uh, on this subject are so consistent, unfortunately, with, with history. And by, by that, I mean uh, just about every great uh, uh, breakthrough, invention, transformational new idea or capability has really had a very positive side. I mean, go back to the creation of fire or more relevant, the steam engine or telegraph or the ability to fly, that they, they've given us all these great opportunities, but they also brought with them uh, the misuse of those uh, capabilities for uh, hostile purposes, for war, et cetera. And because the internet has been so transformational, it's not only really improved our lives with education, uh, uh, entertainment, communication, and now the operation through uh, media like this of, of actually our, our lives, a lot of our lives during the pandemic, and probably a lot of that will remain. But um, there's a dark side to it, and it's, it's, it, it is at the 
causal point of a lot of our big problems. I mean, one of the uh, problems in our political system, the big problem to me is partisanship, uh, uh, partisan and ideological rigidity and uh, that, that holds people in Congress and the White House from doing what's always been done in America when we really wanted to get something done or had to get something done. And that was come to the center. Okay, we don't all agree. Let's listen to each other. Let's negotiate. Let's compromise. And let's get at least half of what all of us want, uh, maybe more. So the, that's not the only cause of a, of a gridlock in our government, um, uh, social media, et cetera, the internet. But, but it, uh, it's really uh, incentivized that it's also true of hate in our country and, and, and terrorism. Uh, so I, let me shortcut it. I, I think the, the government ought to uh, either repeal or amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which basically gives internet service providers, social media companies a free pass immunity from liability for pretty much anything they carry except child abuse material, which was an exception carved out. Let me uh, stop you right there. We'll get back to that conversation on the other side of this break. This is The Takeout with Senator Joe Lieberman. Stay tuned for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Joe Liebman is our special guest. I promised you we're going to get into this conversation about dealing with the pandemic, the work he's done on the Bipartisan Commission on Bioterrorism, Biodefense, rather, not bio, Biodefense. Uh, but I want to continue a couple of other things that are related to the here and now. Uh, you referred to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and it does give say, essentially a carte blanche. There is no liability um, for platforms for dissemination and placing essentially uh, a foundation beneath things that are disinformation. So you, you said you, it should be changed. In what direction? And I, I don't want you to write the legislation, but what kind of things would be markers of something you think is a necessary remedy? Yeah. So um, the, the uh, social media companies, the internet platforms have such impact in so many ways, uh, just think about it. A lot of the activity just leading up to January 6th uh, occurred on the internet. Uh, the, the terrorists communicate on, uh, Islamist terrorists on jihadist websites. They're sources of uh, tremendous uh, bigotry and stimulating racism, anti-Semitism, uh, all the rest. And it's not easy uh, for the internet companies but to give them a total immunity from liability encourages them to be irresponsible, not responsible at all for what's on the Internet. So, look, one simple answer, maybe not uh, the best, but it would do it is to just repeal that exemption from liability that Section 230 gives these companies. And what does that mean? It means that they could be sued by victims of whatever is on uh, their platform. Uh, they'll probably look for something else less than that. But that, that is a simple, clean uh, answer. And it ultimately leaves it to our system of law and our, our courts. Um, so uh, the reason I said it's not easy for uh, the companies, the platforms, is this. There are obviously some things that just shouldn't be on there. and They should take them off. I once had a conversation with somebody at YouTube, and I was complaining about the uh, incendiary 
uh, violent, uh, stimulating uh, sermons by a particular uh, Islamic cleric who was operating out of Yemen. Eventually, we, we killed him with, with a drone. Uh, his name was Alaki. And uh, the woman I was speaking to at YouTube said, well, you know what, we, we, we understand what you're saying, but how can we tell the difference between just the regular sermon he's giving and when he's actually inciting violence? And I said, it, it's not easy, but you can do it. <laughs> I mean, I can tell the difference between whether when a, a priest or a minister or a rabbi is, of course, none of them that I know are incentivizing violence, but when they're over the line or whether they're just talking from a religious base, and they can do it too. So in your political career, you uh, lived the tensions within the Democratic Party about progressivism, centrism. Uh, you lost a primary and then ran as an independent uh, right. successfully. So you know a lot of these uh, dimensions of internal Democratic Party politics. They are clearly at the forefront now. Progressives did everything they could to elect President Biden. They want their return on that political investment. They want the filibuster eliminated. In your political careers, I looked through the research, uh, you were on both sides of that. There were times You're when right. you used it skillfully to make sure the public option was not part of the Affordable Care Act. There were other times earlier in your career and you were for the abolition, getting rid of the filibuster. Where are you now and what should Democrats do? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very open in admitting that my position changed on the filibuster. When I got to the Senate, um, in the first few years, it seemed to me that it didn't make sense in our democracy, which, our republic really, which is majority rules to have an extra rule in the Senate rules that says you gotta get to 60 votes to get anything done. So at different times I supported attempts step-by-step step or absolutely to end the filibuster, nothing ever came of it. But I must say in recent years, as I've focused particularly now as chairman of a group called No Labels, which works to try to bring people in both parties together to get things done. Uh, I've begun to feel that the, in the Senate, the 60 vote requirement actually uh, is uh, a major incentive for people of both parties to get together to get something done because very rarely does one party have 60 votes. And so they got to work across party lines to get something done. That means they have to compromise uh, to pass legislation uh, too often today. And we see it again. Saw it under President Trump, see it now, President Biden. Presidents get frustrated. They do things by executive order that should be done by legislation. And one reason they should be done by legislation is that's, that's what the process of a democracy is supposed to be about. But secondly, it invites exactly what's happening now, which is a new president comes in and by executive order gets rid of all the executive orders of, of the president before him who had a different set of opinions. So, uh, look, I, I'm glad that it appears that the Senate will now not vote to end the filibuster. I think President Biden and the members of the Senate really should have that pressure to compromise, to come to the center to get some things done. Now, I understand that if it's a total failure and there's no willing, willingness to compromise and it ends up in tribal warfare between the parties in the Senate, there's gonna be a very strong temptation among the Democrats to use that 51 votes with Kamala Harris, vice president, to end the filibuster. And, and I, I think that won't be good for our country. 
And there's another tool. Uh, again, I don't want to get too weedy in this, but it's important for what may or may not happen with the Biden agenda, especially as it relates to the pandemic relief proposal he's put before Congress. Reconciliation is a budget mechanism to get things through without a 60-vote majority. There's tremendous pressure on Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader, the majority leader, to do that sooner rather than later. The White House is trying to give the bipartisan no-labels group some room to see to figure out if it can get to 60 votes. If you're the president or you're advising Joe Biden, how long do you tell him to wait for that? Yeah, so let, let's talk about Joe Biden a minute. I know him for a long, long time. I served with him in the Senate for 24 years. And uh, he's basically a center-left Democrat. He's not a left-left or far-left Democrat. And just repeatedly in 24 years I was in the Senate with him, I watched him work across party lines, negotiate, compromise to get things done. He did it a couple of times for President Obama, when President Obama and uh, frankly the Democratic leaders in Congress weren't able to do it. And he particularly was successful with Mitch McConnell, who will be a key in whether anything gets done. So, you know, I'd say to uh, um, uh, Senator Schumer, President Biden, et cetera, and reconciliation could be overused. And if it does, if it is overused, like the filibuster, uh, maybe not in this two years, but give the Republicans an opportunity uh, to come back into uh, the majority in the Senate and either they'll change the rules of reconciliation or they'll play hard with it just the way Democrats are contemplating. There's, there's a little attitude, I mean, it's hard for, I know most people understand, Basically, reconciliation is about the budget process. And so if you can squeeze something into the budget process, and a lot of the Biden COVID-19 relief package does have budget implications, it can come under that rule that says you don't need 60 votes, you only need uh, 51. Now, uh, just, uh, just to continue our education in the arcane, arcane world of the Senate, there is something called the bird rule, as you know. Yep, not, yes, I do. Not, not B-A-R-D, but B-Y-R-D, named for Senator Robert C. Byrd. And it basically says you can't legislate substantively on a budget matter and pass it by reconciliation, only 50 votes. So uh, this is not a really a way to go if you can avoid it. And the way to avoid it is to compromise, in my opinion, um, the COVID-19, the, the, our no-labels group of problem solvers in the House and Senate really working now, they, they were the ones who, who led to the adoption of $908 billion program at the end of the Trump administration to respond to COVID. They're working hard now at the Biden administration. I, I hope they can have the same effect. It won't be all that President Biden has asked for, but it'll be a lot that'll help the American people. That's the voice of Joe Lieberman, our special guest. I promise in segment four, we're going to dig deeply into what to do in the pandemic, biodefense and the like. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. Comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Joe Liebman is our special guest. And, Senator, uh, other Democrats are going to be hanging on your words with this next question before we get to biodefense. So you mentioned the bird rule. Thank you for that. I nerd out on this show all the time, even though my audience may not always indulge my nerdy tendencies. But there's now this huge debate in Washington this week. Do you try to jam a f- increase in the minimum wage from the current federal $7.25 to $15 through reconciliation? John Cornyn, the Senate, Democrat, Senate Republican from Texas, said this very day, Thursday, January 28th, if Democrats do that, it will be as if they abolished the filibuster. It will ruin the Senate for good. Your thoughts? Well, there is that risk. And, you know, Cornyn, uh, is um, he's a conservative Republican, but he, he's somebody who wants to get things done uh, in the Senate. I've worked with him. He actually has joined our No Labels uh, leadership group. It's a, a great sign that he wants to work across party lines. So I would, if I were uh, the Democrats in the Senate, I'd listen to what he has to say. Don't uh, do it, in other words. Don't do it. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't jam through an increase in the minimum wage. You, uh, I, I'd probably support a $15 minimum wage. Frankly, I haven't focused on it. But that's not why I'm, I'm saying that. I think that if you jam through something controversial like that, it's going to uh, create a problem for the rest of the two years and make it harder for um, Congress and President Biden to get done a lot of the things that, are, uh, that really need to get done, number one, COVID response, and number two, the economy. All right, here we go. Biodefense. Where are we with the pandemic? You had a report for this bipartisan commission that talked about things like how to distribute a vaccine, getting prepared for it. We didn't do any of that. It wasn't heated. We can't revisit all that history. But where are we now? Where do we need to go? Yeah. So this report, which we call the Apollo uh, uh, report, Apollo program for biodefense. And incidentally, you said before bioterrorism, it includes bioterrorism and infectious disease uh, outbreaks. Our commission started in 2014. Tom Ridge and I had worked together in response to 9-11. He said there's a real problem that our country's not ready for uh, either a bioterrorist attack or an infectious disease outbreak. And we talked to a lot of the experts. Everybody said, yes, you're right. Here's what you ought to do. We put out a report in 2015 Uh, A lot of sympathetic response, but not much real action. So when we got to COVID-19, we really weren't ready. And uh, we've been running to sort of catch up with the disease or get ahead of it. Uh, This report this week is trying to take the lessons learned from the last year and uh, put them into a program, Apollo, like the, the moonshot program of President Kennedy, to set a goal uh, to end pandemics, and we can do it. And, it, and you're never going to end infectious diseases. That's just part of human history and the future. But you can get ready uh, to make sure that no infectious disease outbreak becomes an, a pandemic again, like COVID-19 kills as many people as this has and, and, and devastates our economy. Uh, and it takes leadership, public investment, might take $250 billion over the next 10 years. But this uh, pandemic is estimated to cost between 10 and $16 trillion. 
trillion dollars. Uh, and so it's a, an investment worth making. So what does that readiness look like? What would an, an average American say, oh, I can tell someone's doing something and that's good and that will spare us uh, from the next pandemic. What does readiness look like? Okay, the beginning of this answer is a little nerdy, so you'll like Good. It. So here's what I've learned. Tom Ridge, too, a wonderful guy to work with. Uh, there are 25 identified families of viruses. So what we would uh, want under this program that we start out doing is uh, develop a vaccine for, for one form of each of those 25 viruses um, that's effective. Essentially, put it on the shelf. Uh, when an infectious disease outbreak occurs, identify, we could do this now, map the virus. We did it to develop the vaccine against COVID-19. Figure out exactly what its dimensions are, uh, adjust the vaccine that we've already got on the shelf for that family of viruses, and then mass produce it and be ready to mass produce it. Now, here, here's another lesson learned. Uh, we're not gonna, we shouldn't force people to, to frantically go on the internet to try to find a place they can get a vaccine or be tested uh, or wait in line for hours and hours and hours. Um, we have the ability, if we invest in it, uh, to make these vaccines pretty quickly and to make them in a form that we can send to everybody's home in America and they can give it to themselves in a nasal spray or a pill. Same with the testing equipment. Um, we're moving in that direction now, but believe me, we can have a personal point of contact, self-administered test that we'll send to people. Uh, and then obviously we'll be manufacturing that and personal protective equipment, masks and the like here in the United States. Because when you get into a crisis like this, that's global, um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not smart to be dependent on other countries uh, because some of them obviously don't want to help us, but a lot of them will be under more pressure naturally to help their own people. So we've got to be ready to take care of ourselves. I mean, we really, infection, I want to repeat the bottom line here, infectious diseases are inevitable, but pandemics based on infectious diseases are not. And if we throw ourselves into a 10-year program, little by little, we're, we're going to make sure that there's never another pandemic like this one in America. Right. And if you have the tests in your home, if you have the vaccine in your home, or if you know it is readily available at your neighborhood pharmacy, a couple right. of things that stri strikes me don't happen. One, you're not so uncertain. And two, you're not so prone to anti or non-scientific notions about how to adapt. And I think that's one of the things that's happened in this country. People didn't know what to do didn't know what was available, and they right. jumped into all sorts of voids of misinformation, which created a political discussion in this country about things that we shouldn't have even been fighting over. You are absolutely right. It's sort of a given. It's like, it's like you know, infants get vaccinated for illnesses. I mean, polio I, Polio was a, a fear that hung over my childhood. It, it's, it's, now, in some parts of the world, it's reappearing, but not here, thank God because of the, the vaccine, the Salk and Sabin uh, vaccines. And, and we can come to the same point with both flu, influenza, and uh, viruses. And as I heard you say, that would be about $25 billion at the federal level over 10 years, each and every year, about 250 overall? Yeah, our, our initial estimate is $10 billion, But I, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, 
sort of reasonable and say, what if it is 25 billion a year? 250 billion uh, uh, for a pandemic, as I say, this one is gonna cost at least 10 trillion. We spend $700 billion a year on defense. Um, I always supported the defense budget generally. Uh, this 25 billion is like two or three, 3% of that budget. And uh, for, to stop a pandemic, this one has already, as you know, I'm sure major, killed more Americans than were killed in all of World War II. No doubt. That's that worth investment. That's the voice of Senator Joe Lieberman, our very special guest this week. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those on CBSN and our beloved podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. For our radio audience, thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Joe Lieberman is our special guest. You've probably heard of him. You know, he ran for vice president, senator for 24 years in the United States Senate, a significant figure in American politics, and still working on things relevant to our future, including biodefense. This is the fun and games segment of our program, Senator. So I have three questions for you. Every guest on this show, uh, now in our fifth year, has taken these questions. Our audience loves the answers. So, in no particular order, whichever order you prefer, uh, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, meaning really get into a good groove, uh, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay. So, the first is the most influential book. Well, you know, I hate to be trite. But it is the Bible. Oh, no, that's not a trite answer on the show. That is never a trite answer. Absolutely not. You know, it, it's the source of uh, a lot of wisdom. And uh, obviously, it tells a narrative of, uh, of like law uh, and the giving of law and values, Ten Commandments, etc., that have, have been important to me. Now, look, I read a lot. I mean, uh, I... I Oh, and when I was uh, getting interested in politics, my favorite book was Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, also a great movie. Fantastic, uh, fantastic. Really great novels. Uh, but I, I, uh, I read eclectically. Right now, I'm, I give a plug. I, I don't even know. I don't think he's alive. I never met him. Philip Kerr, English writer, has a series of books about a uh, German uh, detective, police detective, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is really a history of Germany during that time. But anyway, uh, I, I, you got to go with the good book. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. I, I read it every day. I read a little bit every day. Excellent. Brilliant. Uh, and uh, favorite movie or one of your all-time favorite movies? So this has changed. I definitely went through a period of time where my, like my generation, my favorite movie was The Godfather, one and two. I just watched the remake of three. Not bad. Better than the original or whatever. But then I, I, I don't know what this probably says things about my state of mind. Then I really got entranced with um, Field of Dreams. Wonderful mm -hmm. movie. Yes, it Very set of inspirational. Oh, cried almost every time mm -hmm. uh, the father comes out of the cornfield. Yep. And it remind me of my dad who, who had passed away. But today I feel like I've come back to a tradition and it's fascinating. I watch it. Not every day, but I probably watch it three or four times a year. Casablanca. Mm. <laughs> I don't 
I loved that movie because it, well, for you could figure out why. Yeah. So now what was the third one? Music. What kind of music? Ah, so again, I'm sort of eclectic. My dad, I'm mentioning him now twice, which I'm glad to do, loved opera. So that I'd like to listen to opera. I probably, I, I, I'm a big Sinatra fan. He doesn't sing opera, in case you didn't know that. No, he does not. <laughs> Although he's Italian, and a lot of the great uh, operas are Italian. But uh, so probably to combine it all, I'm a big uh, uh, Bocelli fan, uh, 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 and he does both opera and, and romance. So it's either Bocelli or Sinatra. So uh, I have tried a couple of times in my life to immerse myself in opera, and it just never sticks. I don't know why. I've tried. I'll probably try again. But Sinatra does stick with me. And I'll mention an album that you might be familiar with. I've mentioned it on my program before. It's his live at the Sands uh, celebrating his 50th birthday. Uh, He's with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and a very young Quincy Jones, uh, who is playing, not producing. And it is amazing. Uh, it is Sinatra climbing, trying to climb back into relevance. Uh, when he turned 50, the music world was like, oh, Sinatra's over. And he's like, no. no. And this album is going to prove I am relevant, and you're going to have to deal with the chairman for a long time. And it's, it's spectacular. No, I, I agree. And he was, uh, he, his songs have great lyrics. Now, he didn't write them. Nelson mm-hmm. Riddle and others yep. did. But uh, I listened to them. I'm so fascinated by them. I'll give you one last story quickly. And this is, was how I lived the fantasy. I'm running for office. I think it was Senate one time. It might have been the first time, 1988. There's an Italian there. I'm, I'm ethnically focused on Italians today. There's a festival for one of the saints, I think St. Andrew, in the Worcester Square section in the Haven, which is the old Italian section. I go down there a Saturday night, and there's a concert by a, a band, Vinnie Carr, now gone, a uh, wonderful guy, his orchestra. So he sees me, hey, come on up, Joe. And uh, they start to play my way. And he says, hey, why don't you sing it? So uh, I was familiar with the lyrics. I did the last chorus. There's probably 500 people there. I finish. They stand up. They cheer. (laughs) So whenever people were asking me throughout that campaign, hey, would you sing my way? And believe it or not, flash forward. I don't know how they found this out. I go on Conan O'Brien's show. In 2000, when I'm running for vice president, he says, I understand you like to sing. And I say, well, you know, I don't have a great voice, but no, I understand you like to sing my way. Well, it's, I like it a lot. Would you sing it for us? And we, we Anyway, that was my big moment. We got to find a, that clip. We got to find that clip. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Well, uh, as has as always been said about Frank Sinatra, this is not an original observation. It's not just the words. It's how he held them, the phrasing that he put around the words, and they were unique. They were Sinatra's own, and everyone's tr- lots and lots and lots of people have tried to replicate what he did with the phrases. No one's come close. Can't do it. You're absolutely right. And unlike some singers where I have a trouble understanding, what are they saying? <laughs> it's not my hearing. I can't. <laughs> They're not articulating. You can you can understand every word that's yep. enough. Senator, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for the time. Uh, thank you for covering all the topics we've covered. I hope you are well. Stay well, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you, you too. Take care. See everyone next week. Thanks for listening to The Takeout Outtake Especial. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. 
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.